Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. As we sit here and record this, 785 million people live without clean water every single day. And I realize this is something most people listening to probably take for granted, right? We woke up this morning, we brushed our teeth, we made our coffee. 10% of the world doesn't have any clean water. And if you don't have water, it impacts health, it impacts education, it impacts the local economy. I could go on and on. And the great thing about working in water, and maybe sometimes the frustrating thing is, it's actually solvable. Charity Water had been in this season of explosive growth, and then the pandemic hit. And people started calling saying, I don't think I can make that commitment. Don't count on me. My first speech back was to 10,000 people at the Bitcoin conference. While we built the largest water charity in America by two or three X, we're not doing enough. I'm focused on growing the community, inviting more people to care about this issue, to care about clean water for others. That's Scott Harrison, founder and CEO of Charity Water. After hitting a wall of fundraising trouble early in the pandemic, Scott and his team bounced back and are on pace for record levels of impact in 2021. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Scott because he's grown Charity Water's footprint in good times and tough times by taking far-sighted and often unconventional strategic steps. Just recently, he launched a Bitcoin water trust to tap into new assets and a new community of potential donors. But Scott's success is also a product of his passion and his unwavering belief that there's no better investment in people and communities than clean water. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision, and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, 
a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Scott Harrison, founder and CEO of Charity Water. Scott, thanks for joining us. Bob, it's fun to reconnect. It's been a while. Yeah, we haven't seen each other since the pandemic hit. Some people are trying to wish away or wash away the past year. Others are kind of leaning into lessons, however hard they may have been. What was the last year like for you and for Charity Water? Well, personally, it was a year of immense change. I've lived in New York City for 26 years. Nothing was going to get me out. Raising two young kids in the city. And when the pandemic hit, we had this opportunity to leave the city. We've got a multi-generational family, grandparents and great-grandparents alive. And we pulled them out of Brooklyn and we rented a 1920s farmhouse about two hours north in Pennsylvania. And we never went back to the city. So I'm still here uh, in my attic looking at gardens and a very different view than Battery Park City. We've got 27 chickens. We're growing our own food. My kids are four and a half and six and a half. So they've just loved the country life. Is this a permanent move? I'm not sure. We still have an office in Tribeca. And so far, every time I've been in New York, I can't wait to get back to the farm. So it's permanent until it's not, you know, as I told my wife. For your business, my guess is the waves of where and when the pandemic hit different parts of your business evolved during the year. Yeah, that's true. So it hit us really hard in March. I think it was March 8th. There was a COVID-19 case in our building and we shut down our 30,000 square foot headquarters and we never went back to that space. We then saw donations hemorrhage. We lost about $10 million in corporate donations over a period of just a couple of weeks. Charity Water had been in this season of explosive growth, growing 30% and 40%. So we'd grown the org from about $35 million in donations to $90 million in donations in just a couple of years. We were headed into 2020. We were going to have our first $100 million plus year in donations. And then the pandemic hit and people started calling saying, I don't think I can make that commitment. And then in our kind of micro donation business, we saw a lot of people cancel their monthly memberships. So as an exec team, we reacted pretty quickly. We took a 20% pay cut across the board. We kind of slashed the budget and began to cut costs, just making sure we'd be able to weather the storm. We wouldn't run out of cash. And then we kind of saw the impossible happen. And we wound up raising about $90 million. We saw people come through. We saw our micro donors come through the five and the $10 and the $20 gifts. We saw some really significant gifts from major donors. And it turned out to be an unbelievable year of impact. And we've been able to take those tailwinds really into this year. You and I have talked in the past about your efforts to try to create a system for fundraising at Charity Water where you weren't quite on a, the hamster wheel that a lot of right. nonprofits are in, right? Trying to create a system about it. Did you feel like that system held up 
better? Did you have to adjust that system because of the year? Yeah, it's a great question. So for 10 years, the first 10 years of Charity Water, it was a one-time donation model. Peer-to-peer fundraising. People would donate their birthdays to Charity Water. They would run marathons. Kids would sell lemonade. All of these kind of extraordinary activities from a million donors globally. But most of them gave once or fundraised once. And at year 10, we pivoted to the subscription model. You and I had talked about this, but I was fortunate to take Daniel Eck of Spotify to Ethiopia and spend a week with him in the back of Land Rovers, looking at some of the work that he'd funded. He kind of commented on just how our business model must be exhausting to wake up January 1, have the ticker roll back to zero and say, we have to do that all over again and then somehow do more so that we can grow. So that was really a big pivot for us in year 10. We launched what we called The Spring, which is Spotify or Netflix, except it's a donation subscription for clean water, where 100% of what everybody gives every single month goes straight to the field, helps people get clean water. That grew really quickly, right up until the pandemic, to over $20 million in annual recurring donations. So being able effectively to start Jan 1, knowing where the next 20 million was coming from and being able to build on that base. What was extraordinary, Bob, was we actually saw our three lowest months of churn in the middle of the pandemic. So we thought people would be leaving in droves as unemployment shot up, as uncertainty in the markets, certainly uncertainty in the economy. And we saw the opposite. We saw a resilience in those people giving 10, 20, $30 every single month. And again, we were able not just to kind of hold steady, but to really significantly grow the spring to grow the subscription product during the pandemic. That's interesting. So the spring group kind of held steady. And that group that you sort of were hearing those corporate donations dropping off, is that the group you call the well? Is that your sort of core operations funders? Yeah, we have this unique business model where 100% of all public donations go into one bank account. We call that the water bank account. And those are donors now from 150 countries globally. In a separately audited bank account, we have 125 entrepreneurs and families that pay all the overhead costs. They pay the staff salaries, they pay the flights, the office costs, the toner for the Epson copy machine. That's what we call the well, that group of 125 families. They also were loyal. So it was really what we wound up losing was the corporate number as so many of our corporate partnerships were in retail and they just completely shuttered their businesses. So that was really what we lost, but then we made that up in the small donations and really the generosity of our well members. You usually do a pretty dramatic fundraiser each year for your key donors and supporters. Were you able to do anything like that this year? This was a really cool moment as well. So yeah, we would do these galas every year. We'd raise about $7 million at the gala. And it's a pretty big production and it's months and months of teams putting together innovative displays. Or one year we showed a virtual reality film in synchronicity to 400 people in the Met Museum in New York City. Another year we built a screen in the round that was the length of a football field and we shot all the content in 360. And we had a moment where we drilled for water in Ethiopia and we sprayed the whole crowd. So water started falling down on them. So, you know, kind of over the top experiential visceral galas to put people in the story 
and then encourage them to be generous. Last year, we did something very different. I, I went out to Columbus, Ohio. We found a production company who built us a COVID safe studio in the middle of the convention center. And we did an hour long meeting for those 125 families. We talked to them about the progression of our partners across Africa and India and Southeast Asia, how COVID had impacted our work. We talked about wells being repaired at health clinics. We talked about the hand-washing stations that we were building. We talked about the social distancing education that we were engaged in now across 20-some countries. I'm in a tux talking to people as if they've attended a gala, but they're connected on Zoom. And at the end, the last five minutes, we said, hey, we just want to give you an opportunity to give what's in your heart. There's no chicken dinner. There's no big experience here. Here's the importance of our work. Here's where we're at as an organization. And in the last five minutes of that Zoom call, Bob, with about 120 families, we raised $5 million. Wow. And it was one of the most extraordinary events as we just watch people give generously. As you talk about what you talk to them about, about your operations, your partners on the ground in places all over the world, in Africa and in India, how did you manage those operations, those partnerships? Because as complicated as things were in the United States and from state to state, from country to country, from region to region around the world over the last year, and still, it's very uncertain and, and in a lot of places, very scary. Yeah, I mean, it was a challenge. Our team manages most of these relationships with boots on the ground. I think we calculated one year they flew to the moon and back three times collectively as a water programs team across 20-some countries. So they manage those relationships on Zoom. A uh, lot of phone calls, a lot of you know, getting up in the middle of the night to sync those time zones. But I think what surprised us, or maybe what inspired us, was our local partners. Many of them went to the governments and classified their organizations as frontline essential workers. Saying clean water in a health crisis, in a pandemic, is more important than ever before. Hygiene, hand washing was really important. So we were able to move forward with the work. Of course, there were some temporary lockdowns, you know, two weeks here, four weeks here. But the images that came in, Bob, throughout the year were our partners out there with masks on, drilling wells, operating the same drilling machines they were operating pre-pandemic, installing these giant blue hand-washing stations as the community is sitting six feet apart at a well, learning about how to keep themselves safe with clean water. And a lot of our partners got COVID. A lot of the conversations we had with them, they were experiencing many of the same things we were. There was a real sense of connection, I think, and a shared experience where we're all trying to move the mission forward. And I think it really made the relationships and the organization a lot stronger. Operationally, I mean, you got, I don't know, 65,000 water projects or something, 12 million people, 20-some countries. As you say, there's a lot of drilling. There's a lot of maintenance that's required and all that. I know you invested ahead of this in certain technology to be able to keep track of that. Were there any things that during this year you were like, oh, it's really good we did that? One of the biggest opportunities for me as a leader was I was able to host about 30 plus events with our smallest supporters, smallest by dollar amount. 
And we would invite these spring members who many of them, Bob, were only giving $5 a month. And we would invite them to an hour Zoom and like 600 people would turn up from Slovenia to Ghana to Seattle. And I would report to them almost as shareholders. I would thank them sincerely for their five and $10 a month gifts, their loyalty. I would let them know they were very much needed. And then I would do Q&A at the end. So I got to connect with more members of the Charity Water Global community. We brought our partners in from Uganda and Madagascar and India to talk to our community. So that was kind of a huge win. And now a paradigm shift. We're going to do more of these in the future, even as we resume some of the in-person events. You know, you mentioned the sensors. This is a really important project. Sustainability has been uh, a, a deep focus for Charity Water. We want to make sure that when we invest in building a water project in a rural village in Malawi, uh, in a rural village in Nepal, that water continues to flow for years and years to come. Previously, you know, a lot of people would just drill wells and leave. And there were these statistics we were coming across that about up to 40% of the world's water points are broken, but nobody really knew which 40%. And there wasn't that follow-up mechanism. So we were fortunate many years ago to win a, a $5 million innovation grant from Google to begin our journey into sensor technology, into building sensors across 21 countries. And now we have the largest data set in the history of the world when it comes to rural water supply. So we're monitoring well over a billion liters through our sensors. We're still early with this, but we really think this is the future and will help us just bring greater transparency to the water sector and certainly knowing more about our projects. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was, like, sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. So I have to ask you about the Bitcoin Water Trust. Yes. I keep saying that some things happening in the crypto world sound like an HBO special. So what is the Bitcoin Water Trust and how did it come about? What are you hoping for out of it? Well, I was just in Miami a couple of weeks ago. My first speech back was to 10,000 people at the Bitcoin conference. 
sandwiched between Jack Dorsey and Floyd Mayweather. So that'll tell you something about that conference. <laughs> Look, Charity Water was an early adopter taking in Bitcoin as donations. In 2014, we started accepting Bitcoin. Funny story, Tony Hawk came to one of our galas and he pledged $1,500 at the gala. And he decided to pay in Bitcoin, which was five Bitcoin at the time. So just like anything else, we promptly sold Tony Hawk's five Bitcoin for about $312 each. And we sent that $1,500 to the field to help a bunch of people. And over time, we collected 569 Bitcoin, to be precise. We sold that Bitcoin for $4.4 million. And just to give you a sense of just over the last kind of, call it 60 days of crazy volatility, that 4.4 million would be worth somewhere between 25 to 39 million. So somewhere between what, six and nine X impact had we held for a couple of years. And it's not traditional for charities. We were following the best practice. If you give me Apple stock today, I'm going to sell it. You give me the stock to go and liquidate it and turn it into clean water for people in need. So we handled Bitcoin or Ether like any other asset that we received. And the more I started to learn about the technology, to be quite honest, I became bullish on the asset personally. I believe it has a very high probability of appreciating over time. Then I started learning that pretty much everybody in the Bitcoin community thinks the same thing to an order of magnitude more. So we just came up with a pretty simple idea after talking with a lot of them saying, why don't we accept Bitcoin in a special trust and lock it up and hold it for about five years through one full Bitcoin cycle? And let's open up the trust in 2025 and see what it is, what it's worth. Many people said specifically, I would never give you a Bitcoin to turn into fiat right now. I believe it is massively undervalued, but I will give you a Bitcoin if you promise me you're going to hold on to it. So this is off to the side. I think it's important to say of the core business, Charity Water is going to raise over $100 million this year. We're going to hopefully reach a milestone of 15 million people served. But this is a special trust for people who want to give Bitcoin as an appreciated asset in the hopes that it will grow and have an impact. So we've now got about $3.6 million committed in Bitcoin just in a few weeks with this new strategy. $3.6 million today, I believe it could be a much greater impact going forward in the future. And is the idea that eventually this trust becomes like an endowment? I mean, five years from now, are you going to liquidate it then? Or is the idea that this will be a perpetuating another kind of well to feed the organization? The promise that we're making right now is that we are not going to sell any of the Bitcoin in this trust until at least 2025. I don't think I imagine a waterfall moment. I certainly don't imagine a moment where, you know, January 1, 2025, we turn everything into U.S. dollars and put it in a U.S. dollar bank account. The intent actually is to spend the trust in Bitcoin. And I imagine we might be able to actually fund water projects in Ghana or Malawi directly with Bitcoin or another stable coin, potentially. And I think as valuable as the Bitcoin that we will receive in the trust, and we're so far at 99 committed Bitcoin, is really the relationships with the people that we're getting to talk to. It sounds like you're stronger now coming out of the pandemic than you were going in with more new ideas and more resources coming in. When you look to the future, what's at stake for Charity Water right now? 
Well, here's the thing, Bob. I started Charity Water when I was 30. I was living on a closet floor in New York City with a pretty big vision of trying to bring clean and safe drinking water to everybody on the planet. So 15 years later, I'm focused on the same thing. And by the end of the year, we'll have helped about 15 million people out of 785 million people. Okay. So it's a huge volume of people. You know, it's what? 1.7, 1.8% of the global problem solved. So I, I feel like so much is left to do. We've only raised about $600 million for clean water for the world, Bob. Like that's not a lot of money. That is a fraction of what is needed to, to truly move the needle. As we record this, me in an attic. Are you still in Brooklyn? I am. I am. You're still in Brooklyn. Okay. So, you know, me and my attic in Pennsylvania, you in Brooklyn, one out of 10 people in the world, they're drinking bad water today. 10% of the planet is living without the most basic needs. So here we are with our headphones and our fancy podcast equipment and Zoom and our internet and talking about cryptocurrency and 785 million people lack the most basic need. And while we built the largest water charity in America by two or three X, we're not doing enough. I'm focused on growing the community, inviting more people to care about this issue, to care about clean water for others and trying to grow all of the different communities within Charity Water, to grow the well, those 125 families that pay for the overhead, to grow the subscription community from what, 80,000. I mean. Bob, what does Netflix have now? 150 million people? Disney Plus, I think, got to 100 million subscribers. We have 80,000 people that are showing up for clean water. So I, I believe that's a fraction of what is possible. And look, we don't have access to the capital markets. We don't have the marketing budgets that a Disney or a Netflix has. We kind of have to grow this with word of mouth. But there's a lot more left to be done. And I really believe that the best is ahead. Do you see the outside cultural environment shifting at all in the way people respond to water? Bob, it feels a lot harder than it should. <laughs> I mean, convincing people to part with their money is a challenge. You know, fundraising is hard. And I coach and mentor a bunch of young social entrepreneurs. I was just on the phone yesterday with a guy who hit his first million dollars. He just crossed the million dollars raised mark. And... He said to me, he's like, is it still hard when you're trying to raise $100 million a year? I'm like, yes, it is still incredibly hard. So I think there's a lot to be said for showing up, for consistency, for staying true to your values. I mean, I'm trying to build an organization that is transparent, that is high integrity, that is effective. And I think just by being here, just by doing the same thing, diligently for 15 years allows great things to happen. And I kind of feel like we're going to get the benefit of many of the seeds that were sown seven years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And we're starting to see that. So it doesn't feel like there's a tipping point that's just on the horizon. It feels like you got to keep showing up. You got to keep telling the story. Yeah, you mentioned Daniel Eck earlier. And I, re I remember asking him, Spotify's grown so much. And I was like, What's been the hardest phase? And he said to me, the hardest phase is always the next phase. Like, I've gotten this far. It's always the next phase. It doesn't get any easier. It just gets harder. It's true. It's true. As we sit here and record this, 785 million people 
live without clean water every single day. 82% of those people live in rural areas. 18% of those people live in cities and towns. And I realize this is something most people listening to probably take for granted, right? We woke up this morning, we brushed our teeth, we made our coffee. Maybe we even have sparkling water in the fridge or bottled water to take to the gym or the yoga studio. 10% of the world doesn't have any clean water to drink. And if you don't have water, it impacts health. Up to 50% of the disease in many of these countries is because of the lack of clean water, lack of access to sanitation, but impacts education. This is one of the top reasons why girls drop out of school because it's their job to go and walk sometimes hours for water. It impacts the local economy. I could go on and on. And the great thing about working in water and maybe sometimes the frustrating thing is it's actually solvable, right? It's not like we're looking for a new vaccine or a cure to some incurable disease. We know how to get people clean and safe drinking water. And Charity Water's taken a solution agnostic approach now for 15 years. We fund 13 or 14 different technologies across a global portfolio, but sometimes it's as simple as drilling a well or building a rainwater harvesting system or bio sand filters. And there's always a solution. It takes funding, it takes capital, it takes groups that can go out and turn that capital into the construction of water projects. So when you're able to do that, you get all these amazing benefits beyond just the common sense of clean water you get health benefits. You give time back to women and girls who can use that extra time to sell things at the market, to earn extra income, to lead their communities forward. When you hook up schools with clean water and sanitation, you get better students. They get better grades. So I think one of the great things, maybe 15 years into this journey with the same mission, the same simple mission as when I started, bring clean water to everybody in the world, is that it really is an inarguable good. It is really one of the few things everybody can agree on. It's just a good thing to do. Bob, no one has told me to stop in 15 years. Scott, let them drink bad water. Let the women walk eight hours a day to a dirty swamp, risking their lives or attack or like no one believes that. So whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or an Independent, everybody can come together and agree on clean water for others. So it's allowed us to build a really big tent and maybe some positive consensus in a world that certainly feels more fractured and divided than anything I've experienced in my 45 years of life. So I think that's another benefit, something we're trying to lean into at Charity Water, is inviting people to come to this table of generosity, of compassionately caring for others, and agreeing to agree on this one common good. Water is life. I mean, I still can't think of a better place to put a philanthropic dollar that is aimed at human flourishing, that is aimed at ending needless human suffering. I can't think of a better place to put it than in clean water. That keeps us going, Bob. That keeps us energetically telling the story, retelling the story trying to tell it, you know, like it's the first time. Well, Scott, as always, I love your passion and your creativity and your intensity about tackling this challenge that, as you say, we should be able to solve and we can, and you're making strides on. So anyway, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. And now a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. 
throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we are at stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. I'm your Rapid Response host, Bob Safian. Host for Masters of Scale is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Christina Gonzalez, and Marie McCoy-Thompson. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum and the Holiday Brothers. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, Adam Heiner, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Mina Kurosawa, Saida Sapieva, and Colin Howard. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.